Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Shalom. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. It is so good to see everyone here today. Ugh, this is just the greatest way I can imagine starting off my week. I guess, I guess if we all met in person in the Judean mountains right here behind me, that would be even better. That would be amazing. Um, but you know, there's something to say about all of us gathering together from all around the world, from Norway and South Africa, just watching all of the chats. It's just so incredible. Um, so I have a few announcements. And of course, in the announcements, I'm gonna send out emails afterwards, uh, but they're important enough that I want everyone to hear, everyone to watch, everyone that, to be up to date. First is for the members of the fellowship. You know, all of the past sessions of the fellowship are available for review on our website, thelandofisrael.com. You know, sessions about prayer and the feasts and teshuva and the Torah portions. We have other content like an audio series on the book of Joshua that I made a few years ago. Some of our best and most interesting podcasts, interviews from the past. And now we're fortunate enough to have uh, Cal and Ardell Brody in our fellowship. And Ardell, in her personal inner work, took the time to transcribe every single one of the fellowship sessions. So now you can print up and read everything that we've ever learned. It's all written. And I think that's especially valuable for so many of the members um, that English isn't their mother tongue or for people who like to read and take notes and mark up their books as they learn. It's a huge deal. And it took many hours of work. It's a gift to our fellowship and another way of spreading the Torah from Israel, from Judea to the world. So please take advantage of that. It's just another tool that we have. And um, if you ever have any technical issues getting access to the memberships or problems with what, the music or the album, or I don't know what, you can always write Tabitha. Tabitha, I should nominate her uh, for an award of being the most delightful person in all of Israel. She's always happy to help. And so that's really a great thing you should know that she's always there for any sort of tech. I'm not very good with the technical stuff. She's an expert at all the technical stuff. So that's number one. Transcriptions, the written fellowship is now available for everyone. And so that's amazing. Thank you again to the Brodies. Um, a second announcement, Tehila and I will be coming to the United States this July and August. We'll be traveling from Colorado to Texas. We're gonna drive through Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and then end up in Florida. I'm gonna send out an itinerary to everyone, um, exactly where I'm gonna be speaking, where I'm gonna be, um, I hope we get to meet as many people as we possibly can and spend as much time with members from our fellowship as possible, um, coming together, spending time together, uh, learning together in person. That's second only to coming to, together in Israel, which is also eventually going to get into the, be in the works. That's obviously once this corona vaccine, all this stuff is sort of cleared up, that is such a must. But until then, we're coming to the United States and we would love to see as many people as we possibly can. And so... Um, but until then, all right, here we are at the same time from Africa, from Europe, from New Zealand and New Jersey to Judea, that's, it's messianic. <laughs> and tapping into that energy and participating in this move uh, to kick off our week with that blessing, it's just supernatural. It takes our lives uh, and gives it just a supernatural direction. And I know that there's some members of what's supernatural, like what's that? And what does that even mean? And I think that there's something to that. And it's really like, I don't want to just say, oh, it's supernatural and not really explain. There's just the simplest level is that we're just exercising our human choice, our human gift of free will. And if we just choose to aim our mental, emotional, and spiritual faculties beyond the immediate pleasure, the distractions of the world, the next email notification that pops up on our phone, beyond what our body wants, whatever seems comfortable or pleasurable, and choosing to aim toward heaven, to aim toward good, to see the prophecies in the Bible and try to align our lives with that vision toward the pure, toward the light. I mean, that behavior, that posture towards life, life will reveal itself to us in a totally different way. What we see in reality, if we aim in that direction, will be a different reality than had we just kind of stumbled through life, just bumbling through things. It's beyond the natural animal kingdom, beyond the natural state of instincts. And that orientation creates a dynamic or a response from your surrounding that's beyond the natural order. That's the promise of the Bible. Um, you know, had you, you know, slept in late, ate unhealthy, served your lowest desires, 
your day is going to look absolutely different. And the promise of the Torah is that if you choose to aim toward heaven, heaven will shower blessing upon you and your life, and you will be elevated above the natural drudge of the world. If you choose not to decide, that's still a choice. And the response is you will still exist within the constraints and tyranny of the natural order of the world. And developing the discipline to control your choices, to become the authority of yourself, is the meaning of the bumper sticker, discipline equals freedom. There's like a famous statement like that now, discipline equals freedom. And that is just true. It's like you discipline yourself to activate prayer, choice, obedience to your higher calling. You free yourself from the shackles of just the standard cause and effect and randomality of the world. And all of a sudden there's a freedom that's there that's beyond the natural order. And so what do we do here with our week? We kick it off with a prayer from all around the world, somehow centered in the land of Israel and aimed toward heaven. I don't know of any other prayer like it in the world from 40 countries all around the globe, aimed towards Zion, directed toward Hashem to bring heaven a little bit closer to earth in our lives. And so let's take this moment um, to pray together. And so Hashem, life in Israel now is unprecedented. It's confusing. The leadership is lacking. And all of us are waiting for a leader to arise. A vacuum has been created now. And all of us are waiting with expectation for a new leader to arise that wasn't on the radar before, that no one knew his name, no one knew who they were. And we're waiting for that leader to arise and set things straight to set an example through his life of what it is to be honest, what it is to be courageous, what it is to be godly, to set an example in the center stage of Israel for everyone around the world, to see what the leader of Israel is and how he came to be. An example of a Torah life, a real believer, an uncompromising leader. And so here we are all around the world waiting with expectation that any day now that WhatsApp is gonna come, at any day now we're gonna hear the news. And right now Israel is in desperate need of leadership. It's like a vacuum has been created in order for it to be filled. And so all of us are asking, waiting, praying for a leader to arise in Israel that will inspire the entire world. That's why we're here to direct our hearts toward you and to ask you to lift that leader up, open his heart, let him rise up and lead us toward a pure world, lead us toward a clean world, lead us toward a world where our priorities are set straight. We need a leader now. And so all of us all around the world are asking and waiting, Jew and non-Jew alike, send us our leader. Amen. All right, friends, here we are. It's, um, it's like the ultimate biblical tradition. Here we are asking God for miracles and to reveal realities that have not yet been seen. And then we're going to get really, really practical. You know, it's like one thing when you're sick. So, of course, you pray, you read the book of Psalms. But then the Judean tradition is you take your child to the doctor or you give them some chicken soup, or you, there are actions in the world that need to be followed up with prayer. And there's some sort of distorted view now that like, ah, we're just going to wait for Mashiach to come before we move to Israel. We're going to wait for the Messiah to come to do all the work for us. And that is simply an absolute contradiction of the biblical tradition. And the biblical tradition is that with all of our hearts, we pray, and with all of our bodies, we do. Faith in action. And so, um, talking about prayer in heaven, um, it's time to go where the rubber meets the road, to the newest and deepest settlement in Judea that our fellowship has the honor of participating in rebuilding and restoring, so deep into the wilderness of the desert that no one has even tried to settle it until now. And Baruch Hashem, three people from our fellowship who have asked to remain anonymous at this time, gave enough money to start building. The first sprouts of redemption in the desert it's unbelievable. So I made this video now that spans actually over about a week of our work. 
And so our fellowship would get the firsthand account of our work and see miracles manifest through prayer, through faith, and then followed up with faithful action. Um, just as this like group of misfits <laughs> that are scattered around the world have somehow all come together in the mountains of King David. And we've just transcended the normal religious boxes that people want to put us into. We don't fit into the structures that were built by men and women in the past. And somehow we found ourselves a part of the cutting edge of the prophetic return of the people of Israel to the promised land. And together with the Jews in Judea are quite literally rebuilding and restoring the desert together. And so what an amazing thing to be a part of. And I'm just happy that I had a chance to document it for you. So here you go. Hey, fellowship. So I'm in uh, Jerusalem right now at the famous hardware store called Tubo. That's like our Home Depot. And um, people from the fellowship felt called and they answered the calling to help us buy materials to help rebuild the Judean desert. And so now I'm walking inside here and that's what we're doing here today. I'm here with my partner, Elon. Um, he's really spearheading this whole project. He's the one living there. He's the one that left his wife behind in order to like sort of pioneer his way there until things are, you know, there's warm water and a toilet. <laughs> so he's got to do what he's got to do. But here we are today um, in this really amazing hardware store. It's sort of like indoors, outdoors. I mean, you want to buy building supplies in bulk. Um, this is the place to do it. So today we're gonna to be buying cement, paint, and all of that graffiti, and all of the crumbling walls um, that you saw there earlier, we're gonna rebuild it. And so this is a beautiful day. And just uh, keeping you posted on how we're rebuilding up Judea. All right, so we just now got all of the list of the things that we want to buy here. I mean, it's a lot. This includes the building materials. It includes the basic um, kaleen, like the tools that we're going to need um, to rebuild that police station. And so the difference between Home Depot and Tubul in Israel is that we're in the Middle East. Everything is a negotiation. <laughs> so right now we just got the, um, the first price that they've offered us. So now sitting in my car. I'm going to wait to get lunch. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, how could you say this is the price we're trying to settle the land of Israel? Can't you help us and make a whole big stink? And then we're going to negotiate and go back and forth. And then hopefully um, we'll get a better deal. And that's the way it works here. So I will keep you posted, but it, it's really quite an, an exhaustive list. And thank God we have the funding to buy every single piece of equipment and all of the materials that we need for the first stage. So what else can I do other than thank Hashem and thank you? So here we go, time for lunch. All right, friends, to make a long story short, the deal is signed, sealed, delivered. Thank you, Tubul. Thank you, Jerusalem. Thank you all. And uh, they say two to three days, all of the materials will be delivered to us. We will capture it there and we'll just follow this project and keep on building up Judea. Um, stay tuned. All right, guys, so I just got notified that the moving truck is already at Rujamanaka. All the building supplies have arrived. We're leaving the farm right now and we're going to document the rebuilding of Judea. I'm here with the guardian and princess of Judea, Eden. She's with me today, <laughs> and so we'll show you how it goes. Uh, we'll be there in about 20 minutes. Hey guys, so we just got here right now. They're now taking off all the stuff. I mean, they've already taken off most of the stuff uh, from the moving truck here. Here are the volunteers that are here. Just tough guys. I think they're actually just on a break from the army. And then what are they doing, these good looking guys when they're out of the army? They're building up the land of Israel. It's a generation of Jews that's just unprecedented. All right, so let's see what we got here. Coming in, look at this. Oh, that's that's a lot of paint. This is a lot of cement. There's, ooh, gravel, sand, a new mixer. Fellowship, do you see what we've done here? There's saws here for the wood, plows. It's just like, 
And of course we have the, the dog protector. protector. I forgot the dog's name. But he's, he's, he's on it. And so, what can I say? Do you see all of this just disgusting graffiti? Someone actually just told me that because I don't read Arabic. Can you be quiet? That uh, a lot of it's just like cursing the Jewish people and cursing Israel. And slowly all of this graffiti is now soon going to be totally restored. And this building is going to be beautiful. All right, so now we're just kind of like going over all the material, making sure that we got it. This is Elon's son who's talking right there. And um, look at look all the materials that we have here. I mean, the tools here, it's just amazing. Let me flip my camera over this. So we got this new set. So there's cordless driver drills. Uh, I mean, just this is just amazing. Look at this stuff. I mean, just to make it clear, without your support, None of this would be here, and this project would not be moving forward. So we've just come here. And then what do you have to say about this? This is pretty impressive. <laughs> All right, friends, the materials are here. The building is behind us. The mission is ahead of us. And um, in the next coming days, we're going to start the revolution. We're going to start building this project and I'm going to keep you posted and we're going to see how this just dilapidated building in the middle of the desert in one of the most beautiful places in Israel is going to soon become a hub of activities connecting people to the Judean desert, bringing people to this land, bringing people to this area and reconnecting them to the heart of the land of Israel. And so thank you again. All right, guys. So I'm here back at Rujumanak and I just wanted to show you the first room that we've just completed here. And so what you can see now is that what was a total dump now is now slowly being completed. And so just after a couple of days of work, next time we come around here, you see this wall here now? The wall here, it's all being fixed. What was here slowly is now being covered, all of the holes all of the rubble, it's all being now done over perfectly and then soon to paint it and slowly but surely we're going to turn this dump into just a beautiful gem overlooking the Judean desert. And so we're doing it all together, thank God, in the heart of Judea. All right guys, I just wanted to show you that, oh, oh my gosh, oh no, <laughs> Lord, hello, I'm inside one second. I wanted to show you the progress. And um, you know, uh, there's a lot of drama that's happening behind the scenes. Um, you saw the riots that Ari had to deal with. There's now pressure from the new left-wing government. We don't know how everything is going to unfold, but just slowly but surely, every day, a little, another stone, another work, another like tree, just keep on persistence. Just like a 1% change every day. That's true on the inside and it's true on the outside. Tehila this morning, she was telling me that she was working, I think she was doing sit-ups. And she's like, you know, Today I did 14. As of yesterday, I only did 13. And I'm like, that's exactly the right way to do it. It's like every day, just another, a little bit more. But if you just keep on doing a little bit more over time, and you're just constantly in progress, man, over time, you become a totally different person. And that's what's happened in our farm. Just every day, another tree, another rock, another build, just slowly but surely. Um, that external process is really an internal process that all of us need to go uh, to go through in our own lives. And there's just no shortcuts. It's just slowly but surely. And so we have a wrong road, road ahead of us. There's just many obstacles to overcome. Uh, but together, uh, we're doing something that only the prophets of Israel believed was possible. And so now from prayer and faith to faith and action, um, we're going to turn toward the Torah now. The guidance. And for me at this stage in my life, the Torah portion has, it speaks so powerfully and so directly to me every week, questions that I have, questions that I receive, uh, things that are happening in Israel and around the world. Somehow the ancient texts just speak directly to me, directly to us, just a living word, nothing less. And so now I want to invite Arya Bramowitz to come and share some Torah with us today. He spent Shabbat in Jerusalem, so we didn't have a chance to learn the Shabbat. So I'm really curious to hear what he has to say. And so, Ari, I would love to hear you. Shalom, my friends. 
So I used to struggle with a primary question. How is it that the Jewish people could not only witness the greatest series of nature-defying miracles in human history, but to have those miracles be performed for them, for their redemption from slavery, from under the oppressive boot of one of the world's greatest superpowers, or perhaps the world's greatest superpower of the time, and nonetheless to complain against God and against Moshe again and again and again. I mean, in this week's Torah portion alone, the Jewish people complained about the lack of water, followed by an even worse complaint that the manna as food was not substantial enough for their liking. Now, they do a lot of complaining. It's a little much. Now, on the one hand, it's further testimony to the divine authorship of the Torah because no nation would write a book about themselves being the chosen people and at the same time highlight their many rebellions and shortcomings again and again and again. On the other hand, it's a lot of chutzpah, a lot of nerve. It seems a little much. Did they not see again and again that Hashem is with them and watching them and protecting them I mean, how could they be so short-sighted and so rebellious? It's a real question that I always struggle with around these Torah portions. And then, after synagogue last week, immediately after reading about the sin of the spies and the other complaints, I met this sweet Jew outside of synagogue, now that we're going back to synagogue. I met him after prayers, and he asked me where I live, and I told him about the farm and how we came out to settle these mountains on the Judean frontier. And he responded that although he believes in the Jewish right to Judea, that holding on to this land to him just didn't seem practical. After all, with the pressure from the Biden administration and Iran, he said something about an Iranian sniper having six seconds and an Israeli, three seconds and an Israeli sniper having six seconds and all of these details. He talked about the UN and the, the, the EU, the European Union, the United Nations. We're just not strong enough to hold on to it. That's what he said. He actually said that. I mean, I wasn't talking to a Jew in Berkeley, California, or the University of London, or some other bastion of Western leftist anti-Israel liberalism. We were in the heart of Jerusalem, and I couldn't believe my ears. Did he not read nearly exactly those same words that the spy said? That entering the land wasn't practical, and that on a military and strategic front, it wasn't realistic to think it was even possible to overtake these giants in these well-fortified cities. And then I realized that while times have changed, human nature and Jewish nature have in many ways just stayed the same. Because the same question could be asked of my new friend that was asked of the generation of the Exodus who complained again and again. Because think about it, just now, within the last 70 years, we've gone from being the victims of the largest and most systematic dehumanizing genocide in human history to returning to our ancient homeland in one miraculous war after another. And I mean absolute miracles, hundreds to one odds. The ancient prophecies, the fulfillment of which we've been praying for for thousands of years are being fulfilled right before our eyes, through our hands, to us. And still after that, we still have doubts. We need to play that pragmatism practicality game. After all the miracles we've seen, and after all the proof that God is with us, just I don't understand how we could compromise our values and what we know is true in the name of this pragmatism, in the name of being realistic. So after all the unimaginable nature-defying miracles Hashem's done with us, moving forward in Jewish history and world history, just as he promised that we would be. Hashem is just going to get up and walk away, that he's going to abandon us. It's just, it's just, to me, it's so crazy to even think such a thing, but there are Jews who think that way, many of them, many people in the world who think that way. So how do we liberate ourselves from this small-minded lack of faith? And I think the answer is the same now as it was then. We just need to zoom out. We need to not fall victim to the all-too-human phenomenon of this small-minded myopia, of seeing nothing beyond the very narrow time which we're presently occupying. We need to be able to expand our perspective and see things with a greater scope, 
not just the last three years, but the last 300 years. And not even just the last 300 years, but the last 3,000 years. All of history. It may be easy to look back and to see God's hand in the past, but the challenges of this day can be so consuming and so all-encompassing. It can be so scary and challenging that we zoom into them and that's all we see. It's like holding up a tiny little shekel to your eye in front of the sun and all you see is just this little shekel. It blocks out the entire sun. The idea is that we need to zoom out and expand the range of our perspective so we can see the shekel in the proper perspective. Because that which we're going through now in history, we've gone through before. And if we see ourselves on the timeline of all of history, then the parallels become glaringly obvious. And we can clearly see how the lessons of the past provide blueprints from which we can learn how to navigate the great challenges and confusions that we face today that really may not be that great after all. Case in point, we can learn from this week's Haftorah. It's taken from the book of Judges, chapter 11, verses 1 through 33. Now, Rav Binyamin Zev Kahana, one, a great Rav of Jewish history that was actually assassinated, that's another story. He pointed out the perfection of the parallel between what the nation of Israel faced almost exactly 3,000 years ago to what we're facing today in our times. Okay, so the story starts in the Torah portion, not the Haftorah, but the Torah portion, with the nation of Israel continuing their journey to the Promised Land, and they send emissaries seeking permission to cross through the lands of the Edomites and the Ammonites. And they came as friends. They were super polite. They called them brothers. They said that they would stay on the king's road, and that if any of their people or their animals drank from the waters, they would pay full price. But no. In their state of seeming vulnerability, these kings heartlessly refused them, and they confused their civility, the, the civility of the Jewish people, that is, with weakness. And both kings waged an offensive war on the Jewish people, and both kings lost, after which the nation of Israel inhabited the lands that they had just conquered in these defensive wars with clear, undeniable intervention of Hashem on their behalf. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Let's go back to the Haftorah in the book of Judges, which takes place just 300 years after that. In the time of the Judges, the Jewish people find themselves in dire straits under threats from the Ammonites, from which they, because of which they recruit Yiftach. Now, he was this warrior leader who they rejected many years before, and they promised him leadership if he would come to their aid against the Ammonites. So Yiftach agrees, but before heading out to war, he seeks a diplomatic solution. So he sends emissaries to the Ammonite king and asks him what his issue is with Israel that he's seeking war in such this, this unprovoked way. Now listen carefully. The king of Ammon explains in Judges chapter 11, verse 13, that Israel, quote, took away my land when they came out of Egypt from Arnon as far as the Yarbuk and the Jordan, and that war could be avoided if they just returned the land that they stole. Is that crazy? What is he saying? Land for peace. Land for peace. We've heard that before. He calls the lands that Israel conquered in a defensive war, which Israel tried to avoid, he calls it stolen land, and he demands the return of the land in exchange for peace. 3,000 years go by and nothing changes. Here we are. Just the faces and the names change, but everything is pretty much the same. The same baseless accusations are hurled at Israel with the same demands and the same dilemmas. But if we only take a moment and zoom out, if we only expand our range and study the way Yiftach responds, then perhaps we can understand how we too can respond to these attacks today. Because what doesn't he do? He doesn't ask them about their narrative. Nor does he demand that they accept his narrative. He just tells the truth and speaks in the name of God. Starting in chapter 11, verse 15, he recounts the entire chain of events. And then in verse 23, he culminates his message by saying, So now the Lord of Israel has driven out the Amorites from before his people Israel, that you should possess the land. Right? Get this. So now the Lord of Israel has driven out the Amorites from before his people Israel, and you should possess his land. Will you not possess what your God Chemosh gives you to possess? 
We will possess all that the Lord our God has given us in our inheritance. That's what they said. My friends, may Hashem finally bless us with the leader who will have the courage and the faith to speak that simple truth. That it's not because of any historical claim that we have a right to this land, nor is it because of a continuous Jewish presence, nor is it because of the United Nations or the League of Nations or any other certification from the nations. But the land is ours because God has given it to us as an eternal inheritance in order for us to be a light unto the nations and a blessing to the world. May Hashem finally bless us with that leader that will confidently proclaim that God created the world and that the world is his. And in his wisdom, he gave the land of Israel to the nation of Israel. And that is our right to the land. Because when we have that leader who speaks that simple truth to the nations of the world, I believe they'll respect it. And if they don't, they'll face the same fate that the king of Ammon did against Yiftach. They'll be subdued and defeated before the nation of Israel who places our faith and our destiny in the hands of God. That's my message today. Thank you so much, my friends. Back to you, Jeremy. That was a great message, Ari. I love that message. I think that, that I love how you took the story of Iftach in the book of Judges. What a medicine. I mean, we're about to face a whole new world of pressure from the Biden administration. They're already sending out sort of messages that are like, just wait, we're about to open up negotiations once again for land for peace and weaken Israel and make our borders only a few miles long. It's like Israel needs to find now the courage and the strength to stand up against the superpower and just the simple truth and to speak in the name of God. I just love that. We need big vision here. Like a bird's eye view, it's like a godly view. It's like beyond just our natural sense of time. It's like in the moment, it's just impossible to wrap your mind around the big picture because it's a big picture. The moment doesn't have the whole thing. It's like we need expansive minds, big vision. Um, and that comes with, it's like a power to know our place in history and the times that we're in. And, you know, I just feel like the combination of ideas and the expression of our hearts that's able to come out from all of us together at this fellowship is so special. And a few people have asked me, like, how do we decide to make the fellowship staff of teachers? There's like, there's myself, there's Ari, there's Tehillah. And the answer is we didn't really decide. It just manifested. And this Shabbat, as I was reading the Torah portion, um, and Miriam passes away, that really struck me because, you know, we know all of Israel mourned her death. The women in particular were devastated. And I saw that the original biblical leadership the structure was a triad. It was three people. One was more focused on guidance and living. That was Moses. One was more focused on the heart and the faith. That was Aaron. And then one was really dedicated leadership uh, to the women. And that was Miriam. And I thought how fortunate we are that it just manifested in a way that we have these three teachers um, in Tehillah as just like a beautiful voice uh, for our team, a voice and an address for the women in the fellowship, the wives and mothers and daughters. And I always see Tehillah emailing and WhatsApping and messaging women in the fellowship, because although like the modern secular world uh, wants to try to blur the, the differences between men and women for some reason, the Torah tradition recognizes the truth of the matter. Women have unique questions. They have different perspectives. They have some issues that can really only truly be spoken about and understood between women themselves. And I mean, the men also mourn Miriam's death uh, because men have a lot to learn from women and hearing their voice only makes us better people. And so how beautiful that we have Tehillah here with us as like a, a Miriam in our own right. And so with that introduction, <laughs> I'm gonna introduce our scholar in residence, uh, Tehillah Gimpel, an absolute highlight in this fellowship. In this teaching, I know, cause we learned it together, is just, an, uh, it's original, it's inspiring. She's just, an, a diamond, a diamond. And so here you go, guys. Here's Tehillah. Hey, guys. So happy to be here with you this week. I hope you're all doing well. Um, in this past portion of Chukah, we read about the tragic passing of two of our great leaders, Aaron and Miriam. While Moshe is still with us, we get the news in the middle of the portion that he's going to be passing on soon as well um, after hitting the rock, and he's not going to be leading us into the land. And there's this feeling of like terror that I can imagine, like being orphaned, like there's no more leaders. 
Um, some people note that the sin of complaining about no water in this week's portion goes unpunished as opposed to other sins that did get punished. Um, and people ask about it and commentators offer different answers. I think it might just be because it was like kind of an understandable freak out. Like if your kid misbehaves when they're really exhausted and normally you would you know, discipline them in some way, you might just let it slide when they're like so tired because you know they're just melting down and it's not, you know, it's not like they don't really mean it. So when I'm reading this Torah portion, I couldn't help like but relate and connect a little bit to what's happening here in Israel. Uh, this past Sunday, we said goodbye to um, to Prime Minister Netanyahu, you know, an experienced, weathered leader who navigated us through some tricky times, Obama, Iran, intifadas and you know, stabbing attacks, COVID. Um, a leader that, you know, whatever you think of him and perhaps, you know, you know, there are things that could have been done better. I, you know, I feel that way as well. But at the very least, uh, it would be hard to argue that he wasn't experienced and a competent, dedicated leader. So we said goodbye and switched out for a leadership that does not seem promising. Uh, I don't want to go too much into the politics. You know, they, they say for every two Jews, there are three opinions, right? So, you know, but, but nonetheless, there's kind of this feeling that we have a leadership now that doesn't really lack, doesn't really have the experience and the even public legitimacy. Um, and I, I would be lying if I said that Jeremy and I didn't go through a bit of a freak out, like, oh my God, who's going to get us water? Like, who's going to take care of Israel? Um, I didn't sleep great on the night between Sunday and Monday. And I know that a lot of people uh, around here have that same kind of feeling and can relate to that. And I know that a lot of you guys out in different places can relate with that feeling. Sometimes your leadership, whether on the state you know, level or the community level, doesn't really represent your values. Um, and it's hard. It's hard. And um, you know, there's this idea in the Jewish sources that whenever Hashem gives us a challenge, He simultaneously prepares us with the remedy as well. Um, in the Talmud, in the Tractate of Megillah, it says that Hashem never decrees a hardship on Israel unless He prepares the remedy in advance. It's taught in the context of the Book of Esther, right? Because you know, right, even before Haman decreed the genocide, you can see how Hashem had set all the pieces in place so Mordechai and Esther would be in the right positions to save Israel. So, with that idea in mind, I said, well, if the Parsha is teaching us about the hardship of losing your leadership and this feeling of not having strong leader to show you the way, I thought to myself, maybe Hashem planted in the portion at the same time hints for us how to lift ourselves up and cope with this kind of situation. So in the beginning of the Torah portion, Miriam dies. And then in the middle of chapter 20, Moshe gets demoted from leading Israel into the land. And at the end of chapter 20, Aaron dies and the people mourn him for 30 days. And so I said to myself, why don't we look at chapter 21 and see how Israel copes with this, and maybe we can draw some lessons for ourselves. What works, what doesn't work. So let's start with what doesn't work. What definitely doesn't work is the whole snake story, which starts in verse four. It says that the people became disheartened because of the way, right? You can totally get it. They've just been walking for so long. It's been 40 years and they just get disheartened. And then it says that they spoke against God and against Moshe. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this desert? There's no bread. There's no water. We're disgusted with this rotten bread. Like, enough with this man. We never have enough water. We're just like, oh. So that's one way of doing things. You can just become disheartened and complain. I'm sick of this rotten bread. We're just going to die here anyway. Um, and that ends with venomous snakes, right? So apparently that is not the right plan of action. Um, like <laughs> Exhibit A, don't do that. And what do they do when they get punished with snakes? It's actually really surprising. They say, oh shoot, we messed up. And what do you think might be the next step? Maybe they'll repent. Maybe they'll pray, right? Maybe they'll ask Hashem to forgive us. But what do they do? They run back to Moshe in verse seven. They say, oh, Moshe, pray to Hashem. And then Moshe prays for them. And you know they make the snake that heals them from the other snakes. And um, it's sort of crazy though, because the reason they got into this situation in the first place was they were complaining about Moshe and basically saying he was an incompetent leader. But when push came to shove, what did they do? When they needed him, they came running back and begged him to take care of them. So, you know, that's clearly what not to do. What did work? There are these two other stories in chapter 21 that are positive besides for the whole snake fiasco. One is in the first two verses. It says the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the south, heard that Israel had come by the route of the spies and he waged war against Israel and took from them a captive. So, you know, this Canaanite king hears that Israel is 
starting to come back and they take, you know, they start a war and they take a captive. And what does Israel do? Right? Do they go saying, oh no, Moshe, oh, we're so scared. In the second verse it says, Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you deliver this people into my hand, I shall consecrate their cities. And then Hashem indeed delivers them and they keep their promise and they dedicate the cities to Hashem. What would you expected based on the past and based on the snake story? I would have expected they would have had a freak out and said, oh my God, we're never going to be able to do this. Moshe, what's going to happen? Oh my God, help us. But instead, they don't even involve Moshe. Like Moshe is still here, but they understand Moshe is not going to be with them for long. They need to get ready to face the Canaanites. They're going to be doing this soon without Moshe. So they come together independently. It says Israel, not like one person of Israel. It was like Israel drew together right? They've spent enough time under the leadership of Moshe to see an example and know what they're supposed to do even without Moshe telling him, telling them. And they understand at this point, at this like, they've gotten to this point where they understand that their help is going to come from Hashem. They don't ask for an intermediary. They don't ask for a crutch. They say, Hashem, we want to have a direct relationship with you. They call out to Hashem. And maybe what they say seems a little bit basic, like, okay, Hashem, if you do this for me, I'll do that. You know, we'll do that for you. But imagine they're just kind of like on their wobbly baby legs of standing on their own. It's like when a baby's born, they need their parents to do everything for them. And when they get older, they start to realize that they need to also take some responsibility. So up until now, Israel's always been like, oh, Hashem, do this for me. Oh, Hashem, we don't have enough of this. We need some of that. Here for the first time, they don't just say, oh, Hashem, you know, help us. We're going to take responsibility. Hashem doesn't work for us. Hashem is not our, like, ATM machine. We need to be willing to get up do things, have a relationship that's reciprocal. And so they say, Hashem, we are willing to take responsibility. We're going to fight. We're going to do this. We promise this to you. Please help us. And that works out positively. Now, the second story we see in chapter 21 is the song at the well. It says that Israel sang this song, Ascend, O well, sing to it, a well dug by princes, carved out by the nobles of the people through the lawgiver with their staffs, and from the desert, a gift. From a gift, from the gift to the streams, and from the streams to the heights, from the heights to the valley and the field of Moab and the top of the peak that overlooks the wasteland. So this is the second time in the Torah that there is a song sung by the people. There's the one here, the song at the well, and there's the song that we all remember from Exodus, the splitting of the sea. Now the wording of this song starts with Az Yashir, and then they sang, right? Which is clearly trying to draw our attention to the song of the sea because it starts with the exact same two Hebrew words. It's trying to call us. I mean, it seems like it's trying to call us to compare the two songs. So at the sea, what did it say? It says, and then Moshe and the children of Israel sang the song. And then later on, it says, Miriam took the women and led them in song. It's a song that's led by the leaders. The people follow. And it's this eloquent, poetic, epic, well-developed, like long song. It's amazing. But who led the way? It was the leaders who pulled everyone in to this ecstatic song song here in our portion, which is also interestingly about water, it's not like the longest song. It's not the most marvelous song. I've never like heard anybody singing it. Like the song of the sea we say every day in our morning prayers, people have made a million tunes for it. You never bump into anyone who's humming to themselves and you're like, oh, hey, what are you singing? And they're like, oh, I'm singing the song of the well from this week's Torah portion. It's not super catchy, but I would argue that maybe it's even more beautiful because look how it starts. It says, and then Israel sang. Israel came together. No one told them what to do. Israel comes together. People, like grassroots, come together as a community of prayer. Just individuals saying, let's band together and make a community of Torah to sing out, to praise Hashem. So it might not be the greatest song you ever heard again. Remember, like, you know, wobbly baby legs? But it comes from them. And I just imagine Hashem loving this song. Like when your kid makes you something and they did it themselves, it's so much better than if you like got they got you something from the store because it's like, it's theirs. It's coming from their heart. This is, you know, this is Israel's song. And the song is also interesting um, because it's like they're having this movement to give thanks and to give praise that's taking place specifically at the well, right? This doesn't happen like, you know, when they had the victory over the Canaanites or the Amorites. I don't think it's a coincidence that this song, this ability to come together in prayer happens at the well, because we've talked about the well and the significance of the well in the Torah in the past. 
I'm really into this idea of the well as like the symbolic, uh, as symbolic of like the optimal relationship between Hashem and people, which is why I think the great romances of the Torah always happen at the well. Because in Israel, and we've talked about this before, there are three water sources, right? There's the spring, which is just like a miracle. It's like the splitting of the sea. It just like pops up. Hashem did it. And you're just like, yay, right? Then there's like a pit, like a water pit, like a cistern, like you dig a hole and rain is going to just inevitably fall into it. Um, a well is like a unique combination. It's a pretty cool water source when you think about it because you start digging it. But the idea is that you'll eventually get to some water that Hashem has put there way beforehand. It's like, Hashem gifted you something and you're digging and like you just have to have faith that your work is not going to be for nothing. It's not obvious that where you're digging, there's actually going to be water. So they dug a well and then when it actually works, they erupt in song. They say this well has been dug by us and then they call it a gift in the song, which is kind of funny because they've been digging and digging and they're like, oh, well, it's a gift. Like if you worked all month and got your salary or you got your paycheck, you say to your boss, thanks, thanks for the gift. But that's exactly the nature of the well. You work hard, you do your part, but you hope that Hashem meets your efforts with a gift of abundance and kindness. So it's like, if I look at this chapter as a whole, I feel like there are these two models of responses to losing leadership and feeling that sense of loss and despair of being on your own. The Torah is pointing this out to us and showing us what works and what doesn't work. One way is to be down, to complain, to refuse to grow, to stay dependent, not really learn to forge your own way. And the other response is the response that we see in these other two stories in the chapter that are really similar to one another. It's this model of Israel drawing together and saying, we might not have a great leader anymore. Maybe no single one of us is good enough to fill the shoes of the leader that's been left, you know, the shoes that have been left. And, you know, maybe I, you know, as an individual can't really do that. I can't lead the way. But maybe if we band together, like this grassroots movement, we can be a sort of a force. Like instead of waiting for Moshe and Miriam and Aaron, they draw together in prayer and create this community. Maybe they would call it a fellowship to seek a direct and mature relationship with Hashem, a relationship where they don't only expect to be taken care of, they're also willing to put in the elbow grease to work hard and to recognize that they're in a relationship and there's give and take. And so the lesson that I'm drawing from this week's portion, and maybe it'll speak to some of you guys as well, is that in these times where we don't necessarily have leadership that we can count on and we feel a little bit like in a freak out, um, and we don't have you know, some sort of leader that can represent our values, maybe Hashem is saying to us, okay, you've had enough time with that crutch. It's time for you to walk on your own. It's time, maybe it's like a call to us, like an imperative to grow and be independent. You might be wobbly. Your song might not be, you know, chop, topping the billboard charts, but it'll be your song. Draw close to one another. Draw strength from your community, from your togetherness, from finding like-minded people, right? Even if you don't have a great leader to lead the way and put the power of your prayers together to build your direct relationship with Hashem, having faith that Hashem will hear that and meet your efforts. Um, and that's giving us, you know, that idea is giving us some strength here in Israel, particularly on our little farm, uh, as, you know, Jeremy and I and Ari and Shana try to forge our way forward, even without, you know, the support of the government and, you know, knowing that we don't have necessarily like-minded leaders at this point, you know, we just keep pulling together enjoying the support of this larger community, planting another tree, building another building, and just having faith that Hashem will meet us and meet our efforts and, you know, bless our efforts to be successful. So I hope that in not too much time, we'll be able to meet here together in Judea and all of our community draw together in a grassroots song of praise and faith. So with that, I wish you guys a good week. Bye. Wow, Tehillah, <laughs> that was I just it absolutely inspired. That is just so good. That is just what a message encoded in the text when we're just with no leadership. We don't know what to do. It's like, here you go. You can complain or you can go towards unity, come together, step up with purity and prayer, come together, unity and prayer. And I, 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 those are the two topics that I want to go into now as we like bring this fellowship now to its uh, fruition.
It's, um, you know, purity and prayer, they're so interconnected. In fact, that's really the heart of the Torah portion. I mean, the first part of the Torah portion deals with the laws of purity. And if someone comes in contact with death, he becomes impure and can't go into the temple. And the Torah instructs us that he has to go through this purification process with a red heifer to enter into the temple. And for people who, that don't know what to do with that, that's like, but what, what purity, impurity, temple service, sacrifices, it's, it's too ancient to make sense to us and too archaic to find meaning in that ritual. So what I want to do is explain what all of that represents. These rituals and commands are ideas. They're pathways that lead us toward an encounter with the ultimate. And for us to have a chance to glean wisdom from the ancient practice, we have to know what those practices symbolize, what their inner intent was, what the heart of the matter was as they were acting out the drama of the ritual. And for the most part, the modern world has lost the drama, have lost the ability to praise and worship. Modern people at best are like entertained nowadays. There is no worship. There is no drama. It's just like, all right, that's a funny show on Netflix. And they're just kind of giggling. But at that time, there was drama. There was worship. And in that service, something happened that's beyond the ritual. That if we can tap into the spirit and read the map, it provides for us um, a new dimension of understanding and meaning for our lives. And so that's what I want to talk about now. The Torah portion, um, it's the purity. It's directly related to life. Impurity is directly related uh, to the loss of life or more precisely, the loss of potential in life. Unactualized potential is the root of impurity. And if you look at the story of the journey through the desert, almost every portion deals with another group of Israelites dying in the desert and not fulfilling their life's potential. And the portion of the red heifer, it like arrives right at the height of the, the death sentences in the desert. It's like the generation of the spies that needs to die in the desert, the people that died, the golden, the, the golden calf, the people that died during the rebellion of Korah. This portion, people who complained to Moses were struck with a plague of snakes. In the last plague, in next week's portion, people sinned with the women of Moab, 24,000 people die. It's like right in the heart of all of this, the red heifer is there. And a lot of people are dying on their way to Israel, a lot. And like, what does that mean? that on the way to Israel, so many people of Israel died. And so to answer that question, I want to read the text now on the level of Remez. That's the representative level, the symbolic level. That means that we're reading the stories in the Torah as maps representing our lives and a guide of how to express our souls in the world, how to live in a relationship with our creator, how to live a life toward our destiny. These stories are just symbols on a map guiding us where we need to go. And that's why it's not right to read the Torah just on a shot level, on a textual level, on a literal level, and then to see God as like a vengeful God against the Jews who sinned against the spies. The Torah here is recording a pattern of being, how to manifest yourself properly in the world, how to act in harmony with yourself to fulfill the purpose for with which you were created. And so the Torah is showing us how human beings are in the world and how we're called to live. So if you think about it, Israel started off in the desert, started off in Egypt. And as everyone knows, that's the natural state of men and women. We are all enslaved. That's the default. That's the map. Maybe we're slaves to our fears, to our insecurities, to our lusts, to our bodies, to our laziness, to our pride, each person in their own journey. But all of us start off in an Egypt. Our life's journey ahead of us is meant to take us all the way out of slavery to our promised land a journey to become the person that we were created to be. That's the map. And life in this world, outside of the garden, if you think about it, it's like a desert. That's the analogy here. That's what it's representing. Think about that. Life is not easy. Life is not comfortable from the get-go. It's harsh. It's filled with tragedy. And then humans come along and make it even worse with the, their evil in their own heart. And somehow, though, the desert is the perfect place for revelation. Somehow the desert is the perfect environment, the best place for the human spirit to flourish. It's where our spirits thrive. It's precisely the hardships and the challenges that set the stage for triumph and victory, courage and heroism, true compassion, selfless giving. It's the place that we can walk most humbly with God and to carry his name in our lives, and to strengthen and inspire the people around us. The Torah is teaching us that our ability to overcome the challenges and transcend the malevolence in this world is more powerful 
than the broken reality as we see it now. And it's the spirit of man that's going to redeem reality. That's what Zechariah said. It's not through might and not through power, but through my spirit, says Hashem, through my spirit. And that's our spirit will thrive somehow in the desert of reality. And so you're in Egypt and you want to get to Israel. <laughs> you see the truth and what happens? Most of you wants to deny it. That's like, oh my goodness, what do you want to give up? The spies start voicing these opinions. You want to turn around, but you, you know, what are you going to do? You want to enter in to the next level of life. Um, it's not going to be easy. You know, like parts of you are going to have to die away. Things that you held dear, thoughts that you knew were true, things that you were so connected to, your own identity, you thought were parts of who you were. I mean, I have one friend that is massively overweight. I mean, it was hard for him to walk for long periods of time without hurting his back and hurting his knees. He was struggling with different types of diets for decades. And then one year, somehow he cracked the code. And he said, I just always saw myself as a fat guy. That's what he told me. He said, I had to let that guy die so a new me could be born. And that's just true about all of us. A whole nation of Israel is representative of one human soul. And the first thing you need to know is that within men and women, there are a lot of voices, a lot of spirits, a lot of uh, forces. Many forces are operating within us. It's like our past, our culture, our traumas, our instincts, our souls, our minds, our emotions. There's so many voices in the story of the spies on the way to Israel. It's just our own story toward our own ideal. It's like on the way to becoming all that we can be, on the way to Israel, we encounter a truth and the spies see that reality is not easy. The path ahead is arduous and challenging. And it's like, uh-uh, I don't want this. 10 out of the 12 spies are like, nope, sorry, I'm not doing it. But then there's like two voices that are still in us, the Joshua and Caleb inside us that are beyond our fears and beyond our past and beyond our laziness, that are beyond our body. Voices telling us that we can handle it, that we can do it. And it's like calling us toward that adventure. It's like you want to move into the promised land of your life. You're going to have to stare at those opposing voices and just stare them down. Voices, that's like without strength and courage to face those opposing, vo those opposing voices, you don't stand a chance. That's why Moses' final blessing to Joshua is strength and courage. That's what we need in order to just confront the truth of the reality of becoming who we need to be. And when we leave Egypt and we venture into our destiny, it's not like the journey is easy. It's like on the contrary. It's like from the get-go, as soon as we break free, we start on the journey. It's like, oh, we don't have any water. We don't have any food. You might totally collapse and fail and worshiping golden gods and golden caps and wrong values. And you might have set the wrong goal. You don't know. You're just trying your way out there. And you bump into walls along the way and you fail and you fall. And then you rise up again. And every time you fail and you fall and you rise up again, Parts of you are going to be fixed. Parts of you are going to die. That's what all of that death is about in the desert. Huge swaths of us are slowly going to be peeled away from us. The parts of us that are weak, the parts of us that we identify with, but they're hurting us. They're blocking our development. They're stunting our growth. They're disrupting our family. They're hurting our loved ones. I mean, those need to be sacrificed. Those need to be burnt away. Those parts of you, a lot of you, a lot of just needs to die in order for us to be reborn so that we enter into the land of Israel. Think about that. The generation that enters into the land is an entirely new generation. The older generation had to go. Think about it, 40 years of work, 40 years of discipline and persistence and ups and downs and failures and mistakes and fallings and getting back up. By the time you're at the top of the mountain peering into the promised land, you're not the same person when you first left Egypt. You're a totally new generation. You're a new person. And from where you started until where you are now and until who you could be, that day-to-day, moment-to-moment choice to choose to be your best self, the best version of yourself emerges when you continuously are persistent on that path, constantly choosing the light, constantly walking in the right way of the inner voice of Joshua and Caleb that's guiding you towards courage, that's guiding you towards strength. It's like, I don't know, all of the old habits like a smoking or drinking, lazy, selfish, fearful, resentful, that's long past. A truer version of yourself emerges, a truer version of you. It's like your potential was actualized. That's what purity is. That's the heart of purity. And with a pure heart, you have a direct line to God. 
But here's the deal. Who wants to wait until our potential is actualized until we have a direct line to God? I want to live a God-powered life immediately because I can't go on this journey without God. We want to live in a relationship now. So now what do we do? And with that brings us to the next point, And that is an encounter, an entrance into the temple. Prayer. It's sacrifice. It's like the entrance into the temple starts with the golden calf. And so let's go into one of the deepest mysteries of the Torah that's revealed to us in this week's portion, the red heifer, the para aduma. What do we do with that? We become purified after we encounter this like, oh, the death of reality. And it's like what represents that unactualized potential. Numbers 19 verses one through three. Look at what it says. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the law, chuk that the Lord has commanded. Instruct the Israelite people to bring you a red cow without blemish in which there is no defect and in which no yoke has been laid. This red heifer is recognized as the ultimate archetypical irrational law. It's the name of the Parsha, Chukat. And in Hebrew, we call that type of law, a law that's beyond logic, a chok. And if you look at the word in Hebrew, chok, can we put it up on the screen? Chok means law, a law beyond reason. Mishpat is a rational law. But the word chok comes from the word engraved, chakuk. It's somehow engraved. And keep that in the back of your mind. A chok is a ritual or a command that wouldn't have been discovered by the intellect or rational of man. There's a Torah command not to mix wool and linen and clothing. That's not a logical deduction. It's a chok. Honor your mother and father. Do not steal. Do not murder. That's a mishpat. A rational society should be able to come up with laws that will benefit the society at large, even if the society can't arrive at the moral code and they haven't encountered the Bible yet, the command to not steal, it should be just a rational, logical command that they should keep. A chok, it's like interrelated with the word engraved. It's beyond logic and it's something else. The ritual is trying to engrave something into our heart, into our soul. You're supposed to experience something that's affecting you that has nothing to do with logic. And here we're taught something so deep in this week's Parsha that you know, I, I received a prayer, uh, a question from a friend. And he says, you know, I, I just, he doesn't like know if he believes in God. And it just seems unreasonable to pray that he, if he doesn't really believe. It's like, how can you pray if you're sure, not sure you really believe? It's just, what do I do with that? How do I pray if I'm just struggling? And there's a lot there. And, you know, and it's a totally legitimate question. And it's reasonable. And I think that the question is relevant for a lot of young adults, curious teenagers, seeking out questions and seeking out their ways in the world. And it may be relevant for all of us at different points in our lives or at different points in our days. It's like, what do we do with that when we're just like, we're just in a place of like confusion. And so here we have an amazing key to enter into the temple. And when we've encountered death, we've encountered some confusion, we're estranged with existence itself. The first thing you need is a red heifer. Huh? Why is that the key? To enter into God's presence, that's what the temple represents, you first need this sacrifice. The whole process is beyond logic. It's beyond rationale. You take cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson, and you put them together, and ashes are mixed with living water. Nothing here is rational. It's by passing the logical and aiming toward the instinctual. Um, it's a generation of an experience, not a hypothesis. If someone is stuck and they say, I just don't believe in God. How can I even think about praying? Here, the code is remarkable. The path to entering into the temple is not rational. To enter into the presence of God is not a matter of logic or proofs or smarts. Prayer is an experience that's engraved in our life. And why pray if you don't believe? I think the Torah teaches us that through proper prayer in this irrational way, you can generate from within yourself an experience of God, an encounter that's chakuk, that's engraved in our life. The knowledge of God or the experience of God is something you gain from the inside. It's not something you gain from an intellectual exercise. It's not something that you need to prove or logical deductions or something that's gained through the intellect because someone smarter than you can come around and then knock that down. And then you're like, okay, well, I hope someone smarter than that guy that was smarter comes around and knocks him down. And you're just sort of left in circles. The Torah is teaching us that our knowledge of God is innate. It's within us. It's self-evident. If a person reaches out beyond their understanding, if they face infinity and seek a relationship with the creator of all being, that approach, that step toward God, that speaking to God, that's beyond logic, will arouse within them a feeling of God in their life, even if they don't understanding or even fully believe in it. 
The sages of Israel teach us that the natural state of human beings, when you take away all of the fear and the distractions and the noise, and you're just existing, when you peel it all the layers away, the song of your soul is a song of thanks. Gratitude emerges. Thanks. That's the tradition, even across the East. Even Buddhists acknowledge, I mean, they don't acknowledge God as we do, but they say the proper posture in the world is from a place of gratitude. Thank you. It's like we have a natural tendency to say thank you. It's like, who exactly is the you in that thank you? It's like, who are we directing that thanks to? Abraham Joshua Heschel, in so many of his writings, talks about an encounter with God as ineffable. It's like, it's nothing you can believe in because whatever you experienced is beyond words. It's like, you can't argue with an experience that's ineffable. It's like, we can't even speak about it. Once you put God into words, it might sound childish or misrepresented. So people don't believe in something that's childish or inauthentic. But a moment of emunah is something that can't be transmitted into words. It's ineffable. It's not logical. There's nothing to refute because the experience is chakuk. It's engraved on my soul and in my life experience. But like the red heifer, the first step is an act that's beyond rational. To speak into infinity and beyond and expect an answer is not logical. But in that action that bypasses the logic, something happens that we can enter into the presence of God. So what I would say is take some time. Go outside into nature and just start expressing gratitude. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for my life, thank you for my health, thank you for my family. You don't even know who the you is in thank you. You're just being natural and expressing that natural innate gratitude. And the way you see yourself as an agnostic or as an atheist or as a skeptic, just keep on saying thank you. And perhaps that part of you might burn away. Keep on thanking and expressing gratitude. Perhaps the king, will open the gates for you to enter and have time in his presence. It's like purity in prayer. That's really the way. And without leadership today, all of us united, that's our path, purity in prayer. And that's the light that's guiding us in these dark times. And so friends, you should all be so blessed. Blessed in God's presence that it should be chakuk engraved in your life, that it should be an experience that's just ineffable, that's just between you and him, that's beyond words, beyond debate, that's beyond logic, that's beyond rationale, and that we should all have the courage to take those steps really towards our own promised land. And so you should know we're stronger in Israel together. We're stronger in Israel because of you. We're stronger in Judea because of you, and we're stronger together because of each other. And so know that you are blessed from Zion. Thank you all so much. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.